following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. My personal opinion is that there's this one moment in our nation's history that is one of the most exciting, unifying events that's happened. And it was in the early 60s when the Cold War is happening, there's the Soviets and the United States, and there's all this tension, and there, there's this one moment in time where there's the space race is happening, we finally send a person up into outer space, and there's this pivot point where the, the president at the time, President Kennedy, stood before Congress and with just whatever, regardless of what you think of the man or his politics, the vision that he cast and the way he cast that vision was so powerful that it motivated an entire nation to do something that could almost be considered superhuman. He stood before Congress in 1961 and he said, he asked Congress to provide the funds and to shift the funds towards the goal of putting a man on the moon. And he said it just so passionately, um, not, not just, he said it kind of in, in a measured tone, but throughout his, the next couple years, he spoke this vision so passionately that you can't hear it and not get fired up. So what I want to show you, is I want to show you some snippets of a movie that was uh, from a speech that was the next year, 1962. They've already got the funds. They're starting to, to move in their effort to put a man on the moon. And he goes and he delivers a speech at Rice University in Houston, which is where the command is going to be, mission command is going to be in Houston. And so he goes there and he casts vision for what they are endeavoring to do. And you've got to hear some of the things that he said. So check out this clip from that speech, 1962. For the eyes of the world, now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. And we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket, more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses, several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that on the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this, and do all this, and do it right, and do it first, before this dictate is out, then we must be bold. 
We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Powerful, powerful words. And I wanted you to hear his description of what it means to go to the moon because it's been almost 50 years. It was in 1969. Our nation achieved that mission before the decade was out as the vision was set. We achieved that and people walked on the moon. But I wanted you to hear that again because even though it's been almost 50 years, it really is unbelievable. For all of history, humans have looked up at that moon in the sky, wondered what it would be like to be on that moon, what's happening on that ball in the sky. And there were people that went to an alien world and walked on that moon. And I wanted you to hear a couple things that he said. First thing, did you notice that he said when he's describing what it's going to take to get there, that he said it's going to require um, metals that haven't even yet been invented? Did you catch that? It's not that like they secretly came and said, hey, we've got it all figured out, uh, President Kennedy. We know how to get to the moon, so this is a good time to cast the vision. No, that vision was put out there and cast, and they're like, we don't even fully know all the ways that we're going to do this. We just know that it has to be done. And why does it have to be done? He said, and, and if you understand the context with the space race with the Soviets, they felt that this was a frontier that had to be safeguarded against this rule of tyranny from the Soviets. They felt like if they got there first, that it could be dangerous for the entire world, that they would put satellites and put weapons up in, up in the sky that could endanger the whole world. So for the sake of peace, they had to put a banner of freedom up into, into space. And they cast this vision. Man, when I hear that, I don't know about you, when I hear about that season, that vision, and what this nation accomplished when we came together, that is one of the most exciting things. It's hard to think of a vision to attempt that is more significant than putting human beings up in the heavens, placing them on the moon. Incredible. Now, we're going to look at a passage in this series. Um, it's out of the book called Ephesians. And there's something in this passage that I want you to see. That when I read it again recently, it knocked my socks off. I mean, it blew my mind. And I want you to see this. This is in Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And we're going to take a couple weeks in here. But I want to start in Ephesians chapter 7. In this, this is a letter from Paul to a church in Ephesus. Here's what it says. Here's what Paul says to them. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. All right, now, Ephesians is very rich. Like every statement, like you've got to just stop and savor, okay? It is one of the richest letters, passages in the entire Bible. Some call it the Grand Canyon of Scripture. I mean, it is rich. And I know we covered a lot of what Paul said in that, but I want, you to, I want to pull out a couple pieces for us to savor for a second. The first thing he says is, this gospel which I have been made a minister of. He said, this gospel which I have been called to serve up. I want to just talk about what this gospel means for a second. When he says gospel, he's not talking simply about a genre of music. When he says gospel, that word technically means good news. What's kind of tough for us to get in our hearts and our minds is when you hear it's a piece of good news, like that's a profound understatement. When you hear good news, it's like, hey, good news, you don't actually need a root canal. Hey, good news, you didn't total your car, we can fix it. Hey, good news, you don't have termites. Okay, good news, you're getting a raise. Okay, we can think of all types of things that are good news, but I want you to hear the terms with which he describes this good news. He says, this good news is the profound mystery that has been hidden in Creator God from the beginning, for all ages. In other words, let me just translate that out of Bible talk for a second. The one who invented all that is in existence has a message that he has been holding carefully that is the core piece of information that this universe needs to hear. He's saying it is the profound manifold wisdom. It is the single piece of information that this universe was invented to hear. This is what the good news is. It's that all of creation has been spoiled. It's that humanity itself, we are in active rebellion against our Creator. What does that mean? That means that the inventor of humanity is, is by definition and by right the ruler of all that is. He has commands, he has expectations of how we are supposed to live. But the moment we break that command, we are essentially criminals. We are in rebellion against the one who invented us. So the moment we have a selfish instinct, the moment we violate our integrity, the moment that we do a self-centered act towards someone else, which every single one of us has done at some point, we become rebels against God. 
And God being the one who invented the idea of justice, he is a just God himself. And he says, what am I to do with all of, hum- of the human race? Because they're all in rebellion. They all deserve a just punishment. And what's a just punishment of committing a crime against an infinite being? It's an infinite punishment. And so the just crime for every human is an infinite one. The just punishment is an eternity away from God in hell. And God said, if I am going to be just, I have to deliver that punishment to every single human. Every one of us stands condemned before God. But here's the good news. It's just so underwhelming to simply say good news. I mean, it is the gospel. It is the good news that defines all other good news. God is not just a just God, he is a loving God. And so what he did is he said, okay, I will come up with a punishment that upholds justice but extends my love. So God comes down to earth, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. God becomes one of his creation. He lives that perfect life that none of us could live and then he dies. He allows himself to be crucified on the cross and he says, my death, because it's an infinite being dying on the cross, that counts as an infinite punishment. He says, this death will count as a substitute For anyone who looks at Jesus and says, yes, I receive that on my behalf, let that be the death in my place. The good news is that God says, I love you, I have have planned a, a, I have a, a plan for you to be able to spend your eternity how I intended for you to spend it, which is by my side in heaven for all eternity. Jesus died on the cross taking our sins and then he rose again from the dead, defeating death itself and God says, Anyone who calls the name of Jesus, anyone who says, yes, I put my faith in Jesus, let his death count for me. When we die, we too will rise and we will have eternal life in heaven. He says that is the good news. That is the most important piece of information of all ages that the Creator made. And he said, that is my calling. He says to take this message to the Gentiles. In other words, I have left Israel, I have left Jerusalem, I've left the Jewish people, and I'm sharing it to the entire world. That is my mission. And then he says this. Now, you've got to see what he says. He says, so that through the church, through the church, this message may ring out And what you're expecting him to say is that this message through the church will ring out to the entire world. But that's not what he said. He said so that this mystery might be proclaimed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Did you see that? Can you just sit in that with me for a second? Here's what he just said. He just said the mission of the church through the world, taking this mystery, is the very thing that the heavenly realm is leaning in and watching. This is not the only place this is written in the Bible. 
What he's saying is the mission of the church is not only this message that that God has prepared the universe to hear, it is the grand narrative. It is the great story. It is the great adventure story that's playing out in the universe that the heavenly realm, all of the angels, all of the angelic beings that he created, they are leaning in to see what happens through the church. Okay, let me. this is how I think of this. Um, a couple weeks ago, one of the greatest soccer exhibitions in U.S. history happened right here in South Florida at Hard Rock Stadium. El Clasico was Barcelona versus Real Madrid. They brought them in to play each other. And uh, South Florida got to see some of the greatest soccer players of our generation. And most of us, the vast majority of us, will never get to see these players play um, alive ever again. And it was, it was Saturday night a couple weeks ago, and a buddy of mine texted me Saturday afternoon and says, you'll never guess what happened. Uh, I got tickets to go to El Clasico, and I have one extra one. Do you want to go? I regained consciousness and said, absolutely yes. So we raced off to Hard Rock. We're sitting there in the stands. And, you know, if you watching soccer on television, let's be honest, okay, that's not super interesting. But when you're watching it live, I mean, there's an electricity that's happening in this jam-packed stadium. I mean, it was an incredible game. One of the, probably the greatest player alive, Messi, scores within the first three minutes of the game. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, and there was one moment that I will never forget. It was in the beginning of the second half, first few minutes of the second half, and it was, there was a little bit of a lull. Everyone was kind of seated around the stadium for maybe the first time the entire game. And there's this one moment where the ball was sent down by the goal and Neymar gets a hold of it. And it was like that entire half of the stadium stood up instinctively at one moment, like all at once. It didn't start suddenly. It was like he touched the ball and everyone goes like this. Everyone was leaning forward because they knew something ridiculously awesome was about to happen. What's he going to do? Like, is he just is he going to make this defender look like a fool? I mean, is he going to score like backwards, upside down, doing a spinning flip? I mean, what is he about to do? And there was this energy of just anticipation as we leaned in. Here's what Paul is describing, and you cannot miss this. He's saying what is unfolding in the church throughout the world God's people collected, those who have truly been transformed by the gospel. What, what is happening through the church around the world? The angels, the angelic realm, the heavens are leaning in to see what's about to happen. That's how he's describing his mission and the mission of the church. Now here's the turn he makes. I, I wish we could go through all of this, but we're going to have to skip ahead. Okay, I want you to look at... Chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to see this turn he makes. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I love that he starts this part with, I as a prisoner of the Lord. He is literally in prison. If you notice at the end of the last section we read, he says, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. And he starts on, from this footing where he says, 
as someone who takes his calling so seriously that I've been willing to be imprisoned by it, I'm telling you to live a life worthy of your calling. He's saying, Ephesian church, when I talk about the significance of what is happening through the church, when I talk about the significance of this gospel message, it is what the universe was designed and created to hear. He says, when I talk about that significance, I'm not talking about my, just my own calling that I've been willing to suffer, been beaten, been whipped within an inch of my life. I've been willing to suffer and be imprisoned for that calling. He's saying, as one who's imprisoned, I'm telling you, Ephesian church, that's your calling too. Do you realize the level of your calling? Because if you did, you would live a life worthy of it. He says, do you realize that the cosmic level of your calling, that the universe is leaning in to watch you, Ephesian church? He says, I'm wondering if you realize the high calling you have, now live a life worthy of that. Powerful words. He's not just talking about his calling. He says, do you get it? It's your calling. The, the same intensity for you. Now, I want you to see what he says. We're going to jump down to verse 11, and this is where we're going to hang for most of our series. But I want you to see, if that's their calling, how are they supposed to achieve it? Look at this, starting in verse 11. Look what he says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by crafty and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's what he said. Again, I know, a lot of rich stuff in that, but I want to just pull out a couple pieces. Here's what he said. If you're going to live a life worthy of the calling that is so profound the universe is taking notice, you got to first understand who you are and how you work together. He says, when he says church, I want to go back that, that first section we read. When he says the church, God's speaking that message through the church. That word church in Greek, that word that's originally there is ekklesia, and that just simply means assembly or gathering together. In other words, you have to understand what he means by the word church. Church is not a building. Hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going over to the church. Church is not a building. Church is not an event we all attend once a week. What would you do this weekend? Ah, I went to church. It's not just simply a building. It's not a brand. Hey, well, what does that logo decal mean on the back of your car? Oh, that's my church. It's not a brand. It's not a corporation. It's not truly something that's incorporated. It's not a 501c3 with papers filed in Tallahassee. It's not essentially a brand. Do you know what a church is? A church are those 
people whose life have been turned upside down by the gospel, when, they, when we come together, we are the church. You are it. I hope you use terms like my church. Come join my church because you are a part of the church. In fact, here's the analogy that this passage and other passages use for the church. And you have to understand that before we can go any farther. He says the church is like a body. In other words, when you put your faith in Jesus, you become a body part. Now, I, uh, my wife and I, <clears throat> Rebecca and I, used to um, own two cats. And I say that with heavy regret. Not proud of that fact, okay? We, we used to own cats. And something that cats do, I mean, most people think of cats as like cuddly, okay? Um, Every part of the animal kingdom that is smaller than a cat sees them as terrors, all right? Because they are vicious. And one of the things that cats survive on in South Florida is the lizard kingdom, okay? And every now and then I'd see our two cats like scurrying around um, and I'm like, oh no, they found a lizard, okay? And I'd have to break them up and I'd try and get this lizard out of the house. And one time I saw a large lizard. It wasn't like an iguana, but it was like a larger, like normal lizard. And I get it and I throw it outside the house and I notice that it doesn't have its tail attached. And I can't find it. Which means, some point over the next couple days, I will undoubtedly be walking through my house in the dark and step on a lizard tail. There's only one thing worse than stepping on a squirming lizard. It's stepping on a squirming lizard tail. If you've ever seen a lizard tail, it squirms for a while by itself. Okay, it's disgusting. Why? Because lizard tails belong on lizards. That's where they go. I don't want them under my couch. I don't want them in the living room or the kitchen. They, I want them on lizards and preferably those lizards outside of my house, all right? Body parts belong attached to the body. If you're walking along the sidewalk and you find a thumb on the sidewalk, you're not going to say, wow, look at a thumb in its natural habitat. You're going to say something has gone very wrong here for a thumb to be there. That thumb is not going to survive very long on the sidewalk all by itself. Thumbs belong on hands, which belong on bodies. Okay, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the church, when you become a Christian, you become a body part. You belong together and all of the pieces have to work. He says the body only works together. When all the pieces are working, that person who lost that thumb noticed. They are not working properly because they lost their thumb. His description of what the church is, you have to understand who, not only who we are, who you are. The church is us. It is you. It is us together. We work together as a body. Before we can talk about what we're called to do, we have to understand who we are. He says, we are the body. Do you know who the head of the church is? Do you know who the leader of the church is? It said it right here. The leader of the church is Jesus. Do you know who the actual senior pastor of your church is? His name is Jesus. We do what he says. Jesus is the leader of the body. We are pieces of the body. Every part belongs. If there's any part that's missing, we're hurting. We all work together towards one 
common goal. And what is that common goal? What is that thing that we are all called to? What is that great thing that if we don't work together, if we don't, all the body parts are moving in the same direction, we won't get there? What is that? You know, there's a moment in 1961 that the speech he gave in Houston is where you get the fire behind the vision. But where he first talked about it was before Congress, Kennedy, this vision to go to the moon. And he's asking for them to, to shift, he's asking really for the nation to shift its focus and priority onto this mission. And it's, it's, there is passion and power behind it, but it's very calculated. I want you to hear a clip from his address to Congress in 1961. Check this out. Let it be clear that I am asking the Congress and the country to accept a firm commitment to a new course of action, a course which will last for many years and carry very heavy costs, $531 million in fiscal 62, and an estimated $7 to $9 billion additional over the next five years. If we are to go only halfway, or reduce our sights in the face of difficulty, in my judgment, it would be better not to go at all. Did you hear that at the end? He said, here's what I'm asking, and he talks about what the cost is. He goes on to talk about what that's going to mean throughout the country. He, at one point, he even says, look, we're not sending one person to the moon. He says, we're going there all together as a country. It's going to take every man, woman, and child to do this. He says, we've got to shift our focus. He says, there is a high cost. And he says, and if we're not willing to pay that, pay that cost, if we're only going to go halfway, he says, let's just call it like it is. Let's not just have this, this grand verbiage. Let's not just talk about this significant things. As if we're going to go halfway, let's just not do it and put our focus to something that we are going to go all the way. He says, I mean, th this vision is so profound. He says, we are going to attempt something that we don't even have all the pieces invented. It's going to take every last one of us, and it is going to be something that is going to be costly. But think of this vision. Think of its moment in history. Think of what they are protecting for future generations, this mysterious frontier called space. I mean, think of what they're talking about doing, putting human beings, placing them in the heavens, on the moon, walking around. That is unbelievable, and they don't even know how they're going to get there. Can you think of a vision that is more worthy than putting someone on the moon? Can you think of a vision that is more powerful, an idea that, that is more unifying, more motivating than something like that? I can. Let me ask you a question. What is more profound? Placing a human in the heavens or getting the, the heavens and placing it in human beings? Can I ask you, what would be more worthy to give your life to? What, what would be more worthy? What, would it be more worthy to go up to the heavens to explore the mysteries up there or to be a part of an effort to expand the mystery of God that the heavens themselves are leaning in to watch? Church, can I remind you, do you realize what you have been called to? 
It is the single greatest mission in the history, not of humanity, in the history of the universe. And it's not Paul who's been called to that. It's not just Ephesus that's been called to that. It is you, where you sit in that chair. You have been called to the greatest mission in the history of the planet. And we're being called to live a life worthy of that mission. You have been called to take this mysterious message of good news, the gospel, out into, the, into this world. And can I, church, can, can we take a moment today and use today as a pivot point for the history of our church? Can we fix our vision on something a little more clearly? Can we rally together after something a little more passionately starting this day? Can you think with me, what is it that you and I are called to do together? Your family is called to give their life and my family is called to give their life to. Can we talk about what that would look like? Is it building a bigger church? Is it building a more innovative church, a more eye-catching church, a more well-known church? Is it building something here? Is it building something in this room or or building another building or building something else? What is it that we're called to? I, I would argue that you and I are called to something far greater than that. We are called to see our region and our community, our city. We are called to see South Florida fundamentally transformed by the gospel. That this city, we are called to say, we will not sit back in this generation and allow a banner to be placed in Miami and in South Florida that says, this is the, this is the, the pivot point, this is the centerpiece for sin and sensuality and vanity and evil. No, we are going to place a flag that frees this community from that chain and say, no, this is going to be a place of freedom and peace. This city, this community is a place where the gospel will reign. Think about this city being a place where parents are saying, I've got to move my family to Miami so that my kids can grow up in a place where the gospel is so alive they cannot help but be changed forever in their entire lives. Can you imagine church, us linking arms with other churches in the community that say, no, we are planting a flag for Christ in South Florida and we will not stop until we see the fabric of South Florida changed in this generation and we link arms with them and we say, what could happen if we pump out children and students who are leaving this saying what the world has to offer is not enough compared to what the gospel has to offer and their lives are permanently changed. That is something, I mean, to do that, that's going to take every last one of us. It's going to take you, it's going to take your spouse, it's going to take your kids, it's going to take your grandkids, it's going to take my house, it's going to take your house, it's going to take every single one of us, church, to link arms and say, okay, this is a worthy goal. This is a goal that makes every other goal pale in comparison. And can I say, unlike Kennedy's speech in 1961 where he said, I'm tossing this vision out for you to vote, Congress. This is not a vision we get to vote on because the vote has been cast, the one vote that matters, Jesus, the head of this church. And he said, I am sending you out with a mission that's so profound, the angels are watching. 
And what this is going to require, I mean, think of what this is going to require. Things that we haven't even figured out yet. Things we haven't even invented yet. Campuses that haven't even been started. People that are sitting back that needs to step up and find a place to serve and to lead. It's going to be people that are going about their work in the marketplace who do not realize they are marked men and marked women. And it's just a matter of time when God finally gets a hold of them and says, I have called you out of this and called you into a vocation, spending your life sending this gospel out into the community. It's going to be things that haven't even invented yet, but let me warn you, if we are not willing to pay the cost, then let us not even talk in terms of transforming the community. Let's not even say those words and pretend we're going to do that if we're not willing to pay the cost. If we're not willing to look into our families and say, we truly have to shift the priority of our time as families. We are going to have to look at our personal finances and say, how much can we possibly leverage to spend towards the things that will matter for eternity? We're going to have to shift our entire perspective of what we see as the purpose of church. From church is to find a place that fits my spiritual preferences and shift that to a place where I realize I want to be a part of a church that's not shaped for me and what I most want, but is shaped for the people who are not yet in here, the broken and lost who are facing an eternity away from God. We've got to shift our central understanding of our purpose. That you are not first and foremost called to a career, to a relationship, to amass wealth to save for retirement, you have been placed on this planet for a calling that has cosmic significance. Now live a life worthy of that calling. Church, I believe that this moment in our church life, this needs to go from something that we want to something that we say we are after. Holding nothing back. Where we realize the significance of who we are and the significance of our calling. Here's what I want to invite you to consider. Here is one, you say, well, what am I supposed to do? What, what's the action step? I, I just want to ask you to do one thing. This is where we're going as a church. And we don't know exactly how we're going to get there but this is what we're going to die trying to do. And I just want to ask you one simple question, right, for, for today. Are you in? In your bulletin, there's a, a piece of paper that looks like this. If you could all pull that out, please. If West Pines is your church home, then here's what I want you to do. If you say, yes, I'm in, West Pines is my church home, Let's go after that. Then here's what I want you to do. This has got a link to a series of five videos that explains our ethos. Our ethos, our community emotion, our soul, our heart of our church could be defined by one word, mathetes, which is the ancient Greek word for disciple. Whenever the ma mathetes is talked about by Jesus, it's someone who is all or nothing following Jesus. And so here's what I want you to do. We at West Pines, if this is your church home, we don't have something called membership. We have something called the Mathetes, the 
the West Pines Mathetes. If this is your church home, I want to challenge you to become a West Pines Mathetes. How do I do that? There are a series of five 20-minute videos that at the end culminates with a covenant that hundreds of us have signed together. You can get there by this link. Maybe you watch one an evening. Maybe you watch. You set aside a block of, of an hour and a half, two hours. You watch them all at once. But I want to challenge you, if West Pines is your church home, you have homework this week. If you are not already a West Pines Mathetes, you need to take this with you. You need to click on this link and watch through these videos this week and decide, am I in? On your way out, you're going to find a booklet that looks like this. This is the guide to walk you through that booklet. There are going to be people passing out these booklets at the exits. Get one of these booklets on your way out. It is a guide for you. It's got some, some other things to take you through, um, some devotionals and things like that. I want to encourage you to pick that up. And here's your one action step. Say, I'm in. I want to go after this. There's a calling placed on my life. I want to be a part of what my church is doing. Can I place a vision in your mind that I 100% believe is happening right now? I believe a section of the stadium of angels just stood up. I think a section of angels just stood on their feet and they're leaning in. And I think they're saying, look right there in Miami. Right there in South Florida. Do you see what's about to happen? Do you see what's on the verge? What, what ridiculously awesome thing is about to happen in a place that is one of the most significant beachheads in all of the world because they're saying if you start a fire, a raging bonfire in Miami, those sparks fly into the rest of the Western Hemisphere. Because if you can transform South Florida, you can change the Caribbean, South America, and the rest of the country. And if you can change a hemisphere, you can change a planet. And I believe there's a, a whole section that's sitting nearby that stood up and they're leaning in and they're saying, what are they about to do? This week I had the opportunity to walk through our facility with some pastors. Now that happens uh, monthly, maybe more. We go talk to each other, pastors in this community, like-minded churches that are passionate like ours. We find out what, what we're doing, but... Um, one of our missionaries that we support in Burkina Faso, Amy Rittering, is in town. She's going to be here next week. And she brought with her two pastors that we have gotten to know from Burkina Faso. And these are men that are just deeply godly warriors. And I got the privilege of walking them through our facility. And I got to tell you, I've walked a lot of ministers through our facility, but seeing it through their eyes completely was a new experience. Because I've been in their church buildings. Churches in the African heat without windows and doors that are jammed to standing room only and worship services they can't end in under two hours. And they're looking at this and, and they're, you know, they're looking at all this operation and seeing things that they've never seen before and they're ooing and aahing and we're explaining the significance in our culture for why we do all those things. But let me tell you the one thing that they stopped to take a picture of. We walked into the multi-purpose room and they looked 
at the wooden cross standing on the wall. And they looked at that old wooden cross and they said, where did you get that? It's like every cross they'd imagine seeing Jesus hold and that's what they said. Do you mind? Can we take a picture of that? That's what we're about, church. That's what matters. That's the calling that you have to take that cross into this community. Whether or not it means you spend time in prison, that is your calling to take that cross. And we will not let any other banner be planted in our community if it means the cost of our very lives. Because that's what it means to follow after Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you say, look, here's my first step. Is that I don't even know where I'm spending my eternity. It's all about that cross. And can I invite you to two things? First, that one profound mystery was for you and Jesus is saying, I paid the penalty. You can be reconciled from Jesus. You're not light years away from God. He came to you. And he paid the price for your sins. And you can accept that and find salvation today. And then join the cause you are meant and created for. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Is that you? Is that you saying today, I want to know where I'm going to spend my eternity? then I want to invite you today, right now, to put your faith in Jesus. He died for you. That was his his act of love to save you for eternity because he wanted to spend your eternity in heaven. And so just simply surrender to Jesus today. Just say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did. I give you my life. If that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Just pray this in your heart to God. Say, God, thank you for sending Jesus and having a solution that could save me for eternity. Thank you. I put my faith in you. I follow after you today. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.